0: welcome to the vinyl approach I'm Tom Wilmoth today we talk about artists who attempt to expand their art form experimentation is part of the creative process sometimes it pays off big when Ray Charles recorded his modern sounds in country and Western music album in 1962 he put his career at risk when the Leuven Brothers gospel duo released a secular song their record company threatened to drop them if it didn't become a hit When Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller added strings to the Drifters recording of There Goes My Baby, label executives told them it sounded like two radio stations playing at the same time. Things worked out fine for Ray Charles, for the Leuven Brothers, and for Lieber and Stoller. In fact, this latter experiment of incorporating strings onto a pop song took on a life of its own. Chet Atkins would use this type of orchestration to refurbish country music and create the Nashville sound. Sometimes, artistic expansion doesn't work out as well. Producer Mitch Miller's attempt to reignite the sinking career of Frank Sinatra is one such example. In 1951, Mitch Miller had Sinatra record a comedy duet called Mama Will Bark, complete with dog sound effects. Frank himself was not amused. It is now viewed as the low point in Sinatra's recording career. Sometimes musical experimentation falls between the two extremes of obvious failure and success. Today, I want to focus on two ambitious orchestral projects, one by Duke Ellington and one by the rock band Yes. Both Duke Ellington and Yes experimented with taking their group's music to new realms with mixed results. I have always been a sucker for the big concept project in music, whether it's Laurie Anderson's United States or a rock opera. Jesus Christ Superstar, and the Who's Tommy leap to mind for this latter category, of course. In high school, I also embraced Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick, the 40-minute experiment of filling an entire album with one song. And I bought Emerson, Lake, and Palmer's genre-shifting rock treatment of Mussorgsky's Pictures at an Exhibition. Some of these ambitious projects have aged better than others. Some were questionable to begin with. I can think of several that no longer speak to me, if they ever did. I won't name names, because maybe I should give them another listen. The two works at the heart of today's discussion are each experimental pieces of a symphonic nature. Duke Ellington's Black, Brown, and Beige, and Yes's Tales from Topographic Oceans. These two expansive works took surprisingly similar paths, from being brave experiments, followed by obscurity, and eventual rebirth. In January of 1943, the Duke Ellington Orchestra premiered a major composition called Black, Brown, and Beige for a concert performance at Carnegie Hall. And let me stress that word, concert. Ellington wanted a major, serious composition to play at his first Carnegie Hall appearance, so he wrote a work in three movements that extended to nearly an hour in length. This was unheard of for a jazz band to play a single piece of this duration, even for one calling itself an orchestra. Such ensembles were expected to play brief and catchy pieces that patrons could dance to. I think Ellington really wanted to hammer home the idea that this engagement was a concert and that he was leading an orchestra. Perhaps playing the country's premier performance hall gave Ellington the impetus to compose his ambitious work, one that Duke said was a tone parallel to the history of the American Negro. This extended black, brown, and beige composition didn't come completely out of the blue for Ellington. In 1927, he recorded an original called Black and Tan Fantasy. Then in 1935 came Duke's first expanded work, a four-part piece titled Reminiscing in Tempo, which was more than 12 minutes in length and stretched over four sides of the 78 RPM discs. Although an instrumental, Black and Tan Fantasy had a social theme that would be expanded in black, brown, and beige and Duke's reminiscing in tempo hinted at the later work's much longer structure. Musical seeds had been planted. But there is a big difference between issuing two experimental recordings and performing an unknown work to an audience, especially a piece of such daunting length. Ellington was taking a great risk with black, brown, and beige, as he was undoubtedly aware. Duke's involvement with classical forms was not without precedent in jazz history. Band leader Paul Whiteman had commissioned George Gershwin to compose Rhapsody in Blue for the Whiteman Jazz Orchestra 20 years earlier, in 1924. Unlike Whiteman though, Ellington wrote his own music. Also, Duke was not the first to hold a jazz concert at Carnegie Hall. Benny Goodman's famous Carnegie Hall debut had come in 1938. But Goodman presented a program of his well-known hits. Duke and his band do play their popular tunes, but he also set aside a major part of the evening for the unprecedented performance of Black, Brown, and Beige. So, Ellington was not the first, but in many ways he was. And the risk factor was very high. (music) After the 1943 Carnegie Hall by Ellington, reaction from the press about Black, Brown, and Beige was mostly negative. This even included longtime Ellington enthusiast John Hammond, who worried that Duke's new compositions were leaving jazz and the blues behind. Other reviewers were far more acerbic. Such critical assessments had to hurt Ellington, but if they did, he never let on. He did, however, soon stop performing Black, Brown, and Beige in its entirety. By Ellington's Carnegie Hall concert of 1944, the work had been cut in half with emphasis on sections called Work Song and Come Sunday a year later truncated excerpts ran 20 minutes and by the time of the December 1947 Carnegie Hall performance black brown and beige was gone entirely from the set the fact that this work was kept in the band's repertoire at all even in a truncated form says a lot Ellington as a composer was in constant motion it would have been out of character for him to forever dwell on black brown and beige even if it had been successful Duke was always introducing new compositions Both short pieces to feature his soloists, plus an increasing number of longer works. During the 1940s, these included the Perfume Suite and the Librarian Suite. Neither approached the length nor the notoriety of Black, Brown, and Beige, but the fact that Ellington continued to write long-form compositions is telling. Even so, the belated studio recording of Black, Brown, and Beige would suggest that Duke's enthusiasm had waned for this piece. The studio album was recorded in 1958, 15 years after the work's concert premiere. In the studio, Ellington could have recorded the entire work as he had originally composed it. Instead, he chose to record a truncated version, running about 35 minutes. I have always wondered if Duke returned to this project just so he could enlist Mahalia Jackson as vocalist on the recording. Whether he felt black, brown, and beige had been treated fairly or not, Duke acknowledged that his annual Carnegie Hall engagement no longer held the status it once did. He said in an interview that by 1950, everybody was giving concerts for seated audiences. But even if such concerts were becoming commonplace, Ellington still felt proud of what his orchestra had accomplished at Carnegie Hall during the 1940s, demanding that jazz be heard and evaluated as serious music. 30 years after Duke Ellington composed black brown and beige for his first Carnegie Hall engagement the progressive rock band yes created a multi-part work called tales from topographic oceans this English quintet had done well with audiences since finding a distinctive style on their third release the yes album like Ellington yes came to their major project gradually their lengthy songs such as yours is no disgrace and perpetual change were embraced by the rock audience and played frequently on college radio stations the band almost had a hit with i've seen all good people and then did make the top forty with a song called roundabout this success led to an album called close to the edge which contained only three lengthy songs the title number ran eighteen minutes and this was no stretched out jam a la cream or the grateful dead All of Yes's songs were intricately orchestrated pieces. The Close to the Edge album was well received and this success encouraged Yes to expand their music into even longer and more challenging pieces, challenging ultimately for both themselves and their audiences. Casting around for ideas for Yes's next project, singer John Anderson became intrigued with Eastern religion, He enlisted his less-than-enthusiastic band members to get on board with his vision of a massive piece that would become Tales from Topographic Oceans. The work caused many hard feelings within the band and would ultimately result in the departure of Yes's most famous individual member, keyboard prodigy Rick Wakeman. Tales from Topographic Oceans was a two-record set with one song on each of its four sides. It contained over 80 minutes of music. For their tour to promote the record, Yes decided to perform the entire four-part work. Each concert would begin with the three songs from the Close to the Edge album. This was a lot of music for an audience to absorb, especially when many were unfamiliar with the complex topographic oceans material. Many nights the band was well-received, but at some shows the audience grew apathetic. Bassist Chris Squire talked about how defeating it was to look into the audience and see people falling asleep by the time they got to side three. Nothing to do, he said, but forge ahead. Other nights the crowd was belligerently restless, letting the band know that they wanted to hear their older material. On one audience tape recorded during this 1974 tour, the crowd can be heard shouting for various early favorites. A frustrated John Anderson assures them that the band will play all their requests after they finish playing Tales. But of course they don't. Each night ended with a one-song encore of Roundabout, for some the only recognizable tune of the concert. I must give credit here to Yes for continuing with this setlist, even after things on the tour were not going as well as the band had hoped. It would have been far easier for them to change gears in mid-tour and put on a Greatest Hits show for their audience, but they chose to continue to play the Tales material and strive for the big statement with the topographic setlist. It was quite a risk to present this block of new material to their audience, as they were reminded nightly. There had to be some hesitancy when taking these musical risks, with both Ellington and Yes being uncertain of audience reaction. I think this can be heard in the band leader's introductions to their works. In his introductory remarks to Black, Brown, and Beige at the 1943 Carnegie Hall concert, Duke Ellington sounds uncharacteristically nervous, maybe knowing that he is about to tax the patience of his audience, or maybe he was having doubts about the work. Whatever the reason, for a man usually so completely in control of his music and his audience, he sounds positively distracted as he explains what the major themes of black, brown, and beige represent. His uncertainty becomes even more clear when comparing these remarks with other introductions by Ellington, as when he speaks between pieces at the Whitney, where he holds the audience rapt as he casually tells stories that relate to each number. John Anderson of Yes also sounds tentative as he introduces the religious backgrounds before each section of Tales from Topographic Oceans. But while Ellington explained that his work portrayed the history of African-Americans, Anderson tried to tell his audience that the new Yes material was a four-part epic based on Hindu Shastric scriptures. If Ellington sounds nervous, Anderson sounds perplexed and maybe even irritated that the Yes audience was not embracing his transcendent vision. We are not sure how long Ellington kept the full-length black, brown, and beige in his repertoire, but we do know that Yes began to struggle with the weight of performing their two-and-a-half-hour set each night on an extended world tour. At least two members of Yes had high hopes for the topographic album, some would say pretentiously high. For the first shows at London's Rainbow Theatre, audience members were not allowed into the concert hall after the band began playing. But these classical music trappings did not last. Just as critics pounded Ellington for trying to compose a classical work, critics were not kind to Yes for what they felt were bloated compositions. As the Yes U.S. tour continued into 1974, the band decided to drop one of the four sections of Tales from their set list. Later, to appease audience expectations, they sometimes added a second encore of the song Starship Trooper. Even so, the topographic material remained at the heart of each concert. Following the Tales tour, the band, with a new keyboard player, recorded another not-quite-as-ambitious album called Relayer and immediately returned to touring. I think they wanted to get back on the road as soon as possible with a more traditional show to retain any audience members they may have almost lost on the topographic tour. For their Relayer tour, Yes didn't ignore the Tales music, but played only its concluding fourth side. The new works were long, but not as long. The band still avoided their early material, but the Relayer Tour concerts were well-received by audiences, less of an endurance test for both musicians and listeners. After 1974, the topographic material was shelved. The band went through many changes, but battles by different factions over the use of the Yes name for concerts is a topic best left for another time. Then in 1996, after more than two decades, the band unexpectedly began to sometimes play Side 1 of Tales from Topographic Oceans in concert. Five years later, Side 4 was again performed. By 2017, both sides 1 and 4 of Tales had returned to the set list, plus a brief acoustic section from another part of the work. Feelings had softened. Even Rick Wakeman modified his hostile views about the album. One thing left undiscussed today, were these lengthy works by Yes and Duke Ellington made up of quality music. That is, were they any good? Were they worth the effort of the musicians who performed it? And were they worth the time of the audience to listen to it? I will leave it to the individual to have an opinion about each work, but even forming an opinion is no simple matter, as both Black, Brown and Beige and Tales from Topographic Oceans are time-consuming undertakings for a listener, even once. And to get to know them well, It's like trying to tackle Proust. But emerging from Ellington's lengthy work, even on a first listen, is one of the most beautiful numbers in his catalog. It's called Come Sunday, a song that works well as an individual number and one Duke would perform often. Yes had no such stand-alone piece escaped from their topographic project. I find it interesting that critical reactions to each of these major pieces are nearly interchangeable. At the core of most reviews for Ellington's black, brown, and beige, and for Yes's tales, is the praise of sorts that within these long pieces are numerous moments of musical brilliance. Some are fleeting, and some are of a sustained length. But, say the critics, in both works, these transcendent moments are repeatedly overwhelmed, swallowed up and diminished by the excess of the whole. We know now that members of Yes agree with this assessment. John Anderson once even talked about releasing an edited version of the work. No one can speak for Duke Ellington, but we do know that he reduced Black, Brown, and Beige to include only its most memorable themes before taking it into the studio. Even so, I will defend each of these works in their original and lengthy forms. As I admitted at the start, I am a fan of the large-scale concept project, letting the artist make a major statement. I will listen to the work unabridged. I want to hear the entire Black, Brown, and Beige tone parallel and all four sides of Tales from Topographic Oceans what's the rush from time to time I still return to these works my interest comes in waves I know each is flawed but not enough for me to forever dismiss them and I still appreciate a composer trying to make the big statement or maybe appreciate isn't quite the right word to say that I tolerate such musical experiments is probably more accurate this includes works ranging from Wynton Marsalis lengthy church service of jazz called in this house on this morning to Philip Glass's Einstein at the beach Ellington's jazz orchestra attempts classical forms at Carnegie Hall. Yes's Prague rock band strives to achieve enlightenment on tour. Both works succeeded. Both works failed. But both works tried. And that's what I appreciate most. This has been the Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmoth. A quick reminder here that each of these Vinyl Approach episodes has an accompanying song playlist on Spotify. And if you're interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. Soundbites is available on Amazon. Join me next time for the Vinyl Approach in two weeks when we will talk about the importance of radio pioneer Bill Drake.